Well, it's been a great morning, and we're looking forward to getting into uh, the Word of God today. And, and uh, you know, no, no book on planet Earth has ever changed more lives than the book that you hold in your hand this morning. And last week, we looked at some great verses on uh, the three key areas in the life of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I showed you how that those three areas should be in our own lives. And how in our walk and in our witness and in our ministry, it all should be guided by these three aspects. And, you know, we talk about being like Christ and Christ-like, and everybody likes to, <clears throat> legend in their own mind, think that they are. But the reality of it is it's having a, a humbleness. You know, and humbleness is not weakness. Many times when we think of humble, we think of the Baptist pastor who comes up and preaches and then is a little wimpy guy and you stand at the door and he shakes your hand, you just feel like you picked up a dead fish. Uh, that's not true. Humbleness is the power of God in your life under control of the Holy Spirit of God. And uh, make no mistake, Paul was one of the most humble people you ever saw in your life, but he, he, could, he could put it out when he needed to. And then the second thing was making ourselves of no reputation. It seems today, and we talked about this last week, that everybody wants to be somebody. Omel Sabaka used to say, everybody wants to be the chandelier in the main ballroom. What need God's people just need to be the light bulbs on the back porch. And, and, and that is so true. John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. And then the third thing was uh, having a servant's heart. And realizing that God saved you to serve. He didn't save you to be served. He saved you to serve others and be there for others. And how important it is for us to, you know, consistently and, and in a constant way, you know, have that reality check in our own Christian life. And I told you, you know, God's program <clears throat> will always be through the New Testament local church. And it will be through the preaching of the Word of God and, and giving us that, that reality check. And through that, uh, you know, uh, preaching and using the Bible principles to build your life, you will instill in your life not only those three character qualities that I just talked about, qualities of Christ, but also last week we talked about four key uh, areas that in our lives that uh, really uh, will hold us to a biblical standard, an accountability uh, and allow us to be fulfill all that God has called us to do. We talked about how that we are to get the right perspective, and that means just seeing things as they really are, not as they appear to try to pretend that they are. We talked about <clears throat> getting a good position in life, and that simply means you know a good balance, being able to see a situation and position yourself to be the best used of God in that situation. You know, in every in every scenario in life, it's all about position. And, and uh, you know, it's about how you put yourself in a place to be able to do something. And certainly when it comes to Christianity, it's being able to put yourself in a position where God can use you <clears throat> in any given scenario. Then we talked about purpose. And, you know, and unfortunately, we see this so many times, a life without purpose will be a wasted life. And I've seen God people all my life get saved, and I truly believe that they're saved, but they never, never find their purpose in life. They, and they simply just waste their life. Oh, they have kids, they get a job, they make money, they do all the things, they go on vacations. <clears throat> but that's not what God saved you for. 
God saved you for a purpose, and that purpose uh, without it is, you know, what will lead to all kinds of problems. Thursday night, somebody asked a question, oh, Joy asked a question uh, on uh, depression, bipolar, and all that stuff, manic depressives and all those areas. <clears throat> and I, it simply comes down to, in most cases, no purpose in life. When we have no purpose in life, we have no goals in life, we have no directions in life, believe me, uh, there's a lot in this world to get you depressed over. That's why I don't watch the news before I go to bed. I never sleep at night. It's a thing where the world is chaos. The world is an insane asylum run by the inmates. And it's in every level, in every area, uh, it is just cast adrift. And without you as a Christian, in all of that sea of humanity, in all of that sea of confusion, if you don't have a purpose, you'll get lost in it too. And then I added the fourth one last week, and that is passion. And passion is simply the key to it all. Herb preached on this several weeks ago when he was here. That'll be the fire that will drive you. That's what will keep you going when nothing else will. That'll keep you when you get discouraged from quitting. That'll keep you on a track that no matter what happens, you know that because you have a purpose and you're in the right position, you have the right perspective, you know you're not going to quit. These four areas will be the missing elements, obviously, in Christianity today. There's no, no question about it. You show me a child of God working with these four areas, qualities in their lives, and I'll, I'll show you something special because that's what it really takes. So now today, I want to add to last week. <clears throat> I want to talk about today the, the art of preaching. Uh, preaching has many, many, many different uh, aspects to it. And uh, I, I have the great fortune to have been born in 1950, grow up through the last remnants of, of the great preachers before uh, we got into this sissified concept of Christianity today. I thank God that he allowed me to see some real men who could really hold the line with the Word of God and preach it. They're all gone now today. They're, they're all dead. They all went home to be with the Lord. And with their passing, we've lost the, the art of preaching. We really have. And, uh, you know, I look at it that, you know, uh, I, I've always been interested in military things and collected different various military uh, things down through the years, and one of the I've never collected these, but one of the most collectible items out there are Japanese samurai swords. You know, and the reason why they're so collectible uh, because that most of them were in the families for hundreds of years, and they were passed down from generation to generation. And you know, I've seen them at the military shows where somebody would bring one in, and a guy knows how to take the tang off and a handle off and it'll be marked there with the year that it was made and they're just the craftsmanship was absolutely superb because back then making swords was an art form it was something that you could take a samurai sword and throw up a piece of cloth and just hold it out and let it fall over and it would just cut it to pieces it was so sharp but they were it was an art form back then and nobody makes swords that you go down here to that place on uh, you know, Nolan Road or 40 Highway, 40 Highway there, the House of Knives or whatever it is, you can buy a samurai sword for $29.99 made in China, but it isn't the same quality. And preaching used to be an art form where the preachers were quality. Now they're $29.95 fire sales. And uh, it's lost something. 
And I, I want to I talk to you how about preaching it, that how it will, or at least it should, affect you. I, I want to talk to you about how preaching, how God views it. I, I want you to see how I view it. And then obviously how you should view it. And when the two verses that we're going to talk about today are laid out and developed, they will lay out, uh, you know, for us uh, an attitude toward God and, and the Word of God that, that ought to bring all these things into line. Now, let's, let's read it together. Proverbs chapter 27, and we're going to look at verses 6 and 7 today. It says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. The full soul loatheth a honeycomb, but to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. I'm going to ask John Christensen, you're out there, John, stand up, you're preaching tonight, and you're always a good preacher, and just ask God's blessing on my preaching today, and uh, pray for me this morning, would you, sir? Thank you, buddy. Now, in preaching, you, you have to have a biblical pattern that you follow, or at least you should follow. When you preach, you, you need to have a plan. You, you need to know where you're going, and probably more important, why you're going there, and probably more important, either one of those, how you're going to get there. I mean, a lot of young guys and a lot of... I, Preachers have been doing it for a while. They, they, they just think that you get up and you yell and you scream for 30, 40 minutes and you just let it fly. But there needs to be a definite purpose behind what you're saying. That's why it's called a message. And, you know, New Testament pastors are much like the Old Testament prophets, at least in, in one regard. Uh, they were God's man with God's message to God's people. And that's really what... what preaching is today. Uh, Proverbs 27, verse 23, to me, is, is, is a great verse for every man that ever began to pastor or tried to pastor. That's probably the most unknown verse to any of them, or if they find it, they wouldn't know what to do with it. But to me, it's always been an impacting verse, and it, I got to be honest, it, it's in the back of my mind uh, in everything that I do. And it says in verse 23, Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks and look well nigh to thy herds. And I always thought this verse was vital to at least my ministry. Anyhow, I really can't speak for anybody else. But I, I know and I believe this. A good pastor will know where his church is at and have a feel for their spiritual temperature of his people. And in doing that, there are certain things that you look for. There are certain things that, you know, you, you look at your congregation and you love them and you know them and they're, they're close, especially us. You know, we're like a big family. And my number one goal is to always try to meet your needs. And, you know, when you preach, 
the goal is not to go after unsaved people. The goal is not to go after saved people who aren't doing what's right. The goal is not to go after people who don't come to church anymore, but you'd happen to spy them in the thing you're going to get them today. The goal is to give everybody something. Let the Holy Spirit of God take and minister to everybody what their specific needs are. And it's a thing where, you know, you want to look for certain things within your congregation. I, I look, for me, one of the greatest uh, spiritual gauges for spiritual temperature, I guess, of any church, but in mine, anyhow, is Thursday night Bible study. Watch who shows up. Watch the questions or listen to the questions that are asked. And it kind of gives you a spiritual feeling where everybody is at. Because the questions will always reflect what you're doing with the Word of God. Now, I know, I know. Some of you say to me, well, you know, I want to ask the question, but I think it's a stupid question. Let me tell you something. There is no stupid questions about the Bible. Some of my answers may be stupid, but there's not any stupid questions about the Bible. And somebody said, well, other people have asked this before. I don't care how many times people ask it because the price of learning is repetition. So, see, it doesn't matter. If, if it's something that you have a need and you want to know, then it's the most important thing on my plate at that particular point in Bible study because that's, what, that's where you're at. I think that your attitude toward working with people is a great spiritual uh, temperature taker of our church, like in the people ministry. How many of you invest your lives? And, and you don't have to do that. You know, I hear people all the time say, well, I just you don't know how busy I am. You're all busy. Is there anybody here that just lays around eating bonbons and watching the soap operas all day long? Charles. Everybody. <laughs> Other than Charles? <laughs> We're all busy. Everybody's busy. You, you have to learn to prioritize things in your life. And that goes back to the, the perspective, the purpose. Understanding why God saved you and, and what you, you need to do and what God wants you to do. I think the Bible Institute is another one. It shows me how, when you've got 100 people out there that are coming, they want to really learn the Bible on a level that we go into it because it, it's, it's a tough thing. You know, it's just, a, it's, it's just it, it helps me to see where you're at. And, and I always want to be uh, cognizant of the needs of, of, of my people. And, uh, you know, um, a pastor will see his church on different levels. And he'll know that not everybody is going to be where he would want them to be. Some people don't progress through it as quickly as others. Some people, honestly, don't progress at all. But it's okay. It, 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 it's, you, you always want to be ready to help that person get to where they want to go when they finally get their head out of the clouds and decide this is what I want to do. You know, Mel Sabaka waited me for almost 19 years before I got the head out of my clouds or wherever it was, and, and, and he waited for me. That taught me a great thing. You know, I don't have a lot of patience about some things in life. You, I go through a drive through and there's people dinking around up there, uh, you know, talking to the person at the deal like they know them. I don't care if you know them. I want my cheeseburgers. I'm in line. I've been waiting for here. And, you know, and, and then you get up there and they'll say, I'll get a Diet Coke. Well, we're out of Diet Coke. You know what? You got this big sign out there. Why don't you put up there, we don't have any Diet Coke. Now you're forcing me to eat what I love the best, two cheeseburgers. That's all. No fries, just two cheeseburgers. Now I got to either have water 
Dr. Pepper? Are you kidding me? I mean, it's, I'm not very patient about those things. I, I drive someplace and, you know, and don't take this wrong. You'll find homeless people in every street corner. Now, I can say what I say because two Sundays out of the month, I personally responsible for putting this together. We feed, what, 600 homeless people? So I know homeless people. You know, it's funny. Before we started our downtown stuff, you could drive downtown and, and, never, and never see that they were there. Now I drive down, I'll see one three miles away, and I know he's homeless. It makes you aware of things. But I tell you, I mean, I realize that there's, I realize that, that there are people out there who are really hurting, and I try to help that. But I'm going to tell you, those street corner gigs are, are real money makers. And a lot of those people, I mean, you know what? They got money for cigarettes. They're talking on a cell phone. And, you know, somebody, the light will turn green, and this guy is giving this guy 30 cents worth of chain counting out the pennies one at a time. I get impatient with that. And I, t- I, did, I honk the horn. I, I honk the horn. I, I, you know what? I, I'm not patient with things like that. I, I'm really not. I, I'm, you know, confess your faults one to another. Here I am, all right? I just tell you, I, I, I save all of my gift cards when there's nothing on them. <laughs> but God has given me patience with people. Uh, uh, people, I, I have all the patience in the world with people. As long as you're not homeless. <laughs> I mean, I don't care how long it takes for you. I've had people in my ministry that were, didn't get it together for 10, 15, 20 years. And you know what? I don't get an attitude about it. Because you know, a, a, a pastor loves people whether they do what's right or not. And I'll learn something else. You never want to shut the door in somebody's life. Now, there are, okay, there are times when a door needs to be shut, bolted, welded, and put triple locks on it. But not very often. And you never want to shut a door that whenever that person decides to figure it out, that you're not there for them. Because somebody was there for me. It took me 19-some years to figure it out. And where would I be today if somebody didn't follow that? And, you know, so I have tremendous patience with people. I, I, let, them, I let them use me. I let them abuse me. I let them hose me. Uh, you know, my wife goes crazy every time somebody sticks it to me. But you know what? It's what it is. I like having a good conscience toward God. And no matter what you do to me, I know I did what right with you. And when somebody says to me and comes back and says, well, why didn't you do to me what, what I did to you? And, and my answer is standard. That's because I don't want to be like you. It, it's never wrong to do right. And when you don't get your feelings involved in it or get your emotions involved in it, you, you can, you, you, hey, people, you know, people are, are problematic because of their old sin nature. They're not going to get it turned around just like that. And when you find one like that, well, that's great, but you don't find them very often. You've got to be there for them. You've got to wait for them. So a pastor will see his church on different levels. And his job is to try to find out how he can better help them, not to criticize them. Now, if you do something stupid, I'm going to tell you it's stupid. But it's the fact, that doesn't mean I don't love you. 
You know, you have to discipline your children, and sometimes the discipline is not pretty. But that doesn't mean you don't love them. And, and a pastor will accomplish this by being one with them. It won't be like last week where the pastor thinks he's better than you are. You know, higher and better than anybody else. You know, uh, you can't have access to him. I, I call this the Martin Borman syndrome in most churches. Martin Borman, most people don't even know who he was. He was Adolf Hitler's personal secretary. Everybody thinks that Adolf Hitler was the most powerful man in the Third Reich, but he really wasn't. You know who the most powerful man was? Martin Borman. Because Martin Borman controlled who got to go see Hitler. Because everybody had to go through him. So if he didn't like you, you didn't get in. If he did like you, you got in. Hitler had nothing to do with it. And you know, most churches are like that with most pastors. There'll be a Martin Borman. She's usually a woman. So her name will be Martina Borman. <laughs> but it'll be his personal secretary who controls the access to him. And he turns that over to her. You'll never get his cell phone number. You can never just stop into his house. You've got to go through Martina. And if she's in a good mood and she likes you, you'll get in to see him, maybe. If she doesn't, you'll never see him. That, that's the way it works today. And it's a tragedy. It really is. In truth, when people are close to the Word of God, the pastor and his people, he knows where they're at, but they also know where he's at. And he also knows what they need. And through that openness of the relationship, they will build a bond together for one purpose. That's the ministry that God has saved us for. Just that simple. Now, today in our megachurch concept, which we talk a lot about, and I talk about how it's the second round. It was back in the 60s and the 70s and failed then and it'll fail today. This will never happen. You're just a number on a giving record someplace. You're just a statistic. A couple of weeks ago, I I gave you the eight things that a pastor has to do well uh, if he's going to build a church or people or or do what he's supposed to do. He has to have the ability to, to relate to people. He has to have the ability to educate people. He has to have the ability to elevate people. He has to have the ability to motivate people, to accelerate people, get them growing faster than than normal, Uh, regenerate people, get them saved, duplicate people, build the process of building himself into people to to replicate what do. And, And of course, to placate people. That is to put up with people to help them realize that, uh, you know, all our feet is clay. We're all flesh. We're all struggle. We all do dumb things. We all say dumb things. And you know what? It's just, it's just where it's at today. And, you know, today, within what we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about three of those in particular. We're going to talk about elevate, motivate, and accelerate in your Christian life. Finding a way to get you to keep moving up the level of spiritual growth. And I'm going to tell you right now, there's one thing as a Christian, uh, there's a lot of things that preachers uh, preach on that Christians can't do. And some of it's okay and some of it's stupid. But I'll tell you as a pastor, one thing you can never not do, you cannot stop growing. Because the moment you stop growing spiritually, you're in trouble. We know the Bible uh, talks about the seven stages of spiritual growth. And, uh, you know, the church's job is, is to do that. And, you know, 
the church has failed, and you know, and you you hear me crack a lot about Bible colleges because of what they are, and I get that. But in their defense, and it's not much of a defense, but in their defense, Bible colleges came into existence because pastors failed to do their job. They failed to recognize that their goal was to train people, bring them up. The examples are all through the Bible, Paul and Timothy, Paul and Titus, Paul and Philemon. I mean, you can see it all through the Bible, Paul and, and, and all the people that he invested his life in. The model's clear, but churches and pastors failed to do that. So out of that, the Bible colleges came in, and it, the, the ability and the biblical training of the young man in the local church, which was by God's design, now switched over to an educational facility that wound up being used of the devil to destroy men's faith in the Word of God. But that's how it started. You know, we have something else in Christianity today that, in my mind, is, is, is utterly, totally the goofiest thing on the planet. Everybody is getting into these being a life coach. Getting your certificate that you're a life coach now. And I'll take you for a mere thousand dollars and I'll spend two or three months with you or whatever helping you find yourself. And I'll be your life coach. I'll help you find the true concept of life. Now, you know how that, and I, can't, I cannot think of anything more despicable for a Christian to do, and I'm just being honest, than to try to charge you for something that God gave them free. Every pastor ought to be a life coach. You can call me whatever you want, and some of you do, but at the end of the day, by God's design, I am your life coach. I stand in the pulpit and I give you that and lay it all out. The idea that some man now is going to go get a certificate or a woman and they're going to go get a certificate and they're certified now by who, I'm not sure, that they can be a life coach and they can take your life now and put it all together for $1,000 or whatever the case may be. And I guess if you don't have $1,000, you come up at half, you'll just find half of yourself, lower half or the bottom half. You can decide that, I'm sure. It's, it's stupid. The job of every pastor in every church is to be your life coach is to be there for you with no cost involved, is to be there for you to give you the perspective, the purpose and the desires and the passions, to build everything into you and to know the state of your flock, know where you're at and know what you need even when you don't think you need it. And maybe I think you need it, you don't think you need it, so I'm smart enough to know that I can't give it to you right now, but I'll put it in my back pocket till you're ready for it. But that's what... That's what preaching does. That's what the local church does. Not a Bible college nor a life coach. You do this by having a good balance in a church through your preaching and your teaching. Teaching will educate you and teaching will elevate you. And that's very important. But preaching will motivate you. Preaching will do what teaching can't. It will motivate you. Preaching will give you your reality check. Preaching will make you look inside yourself and be accountable. Now, based on our two verses today, let's, let's talk about preaching. And I want to talk about an attitude. I want to talk about an attitude behind preaching on the pastor's part. And then I want to talk about an attitude behind receiving the preaching on the people's part. And our verse today says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. 
Now, I don't want to beat around the bush with this, and I want to make it very clear at the outset, the preaching of the Word of God will wound you by God's design. The Bible says that the Word of God is like a sword in Hebrews chapter 4, so it'll cut you. In Matthew chapter 12, talking about John the Baptist, it will bruise you. We go back to Daniel chapter 2, it will crush you or smite you. Over in Romans chapter 11 verse 7, it'll become a stumbling block that you'll trip over and break your leg or your neck on. Acts chapter 9 verse 5, the Bible says the word of God will prick you in your heart. Hebrews chapter 4 says it'll divide you. And Hebrews chapter uh, 11, excuse me, 11 will divide you. And Hebrews chapter 11 says it'll pierce you. So I want to be clear that the preaching of the word of God will wound you by God's design. And here's what it will. It will wound your pride. It'll wound your ego. It'll wound your sinful lifestyle. It'll wound your indifference. It'll wound your attitude about life and all the things you think you got to have. It will bring you through the wounding to a reality check that you have to look at yourself. And this faithful wounding of a friend to you will be exactly what you need when it's done right to help you and not done to hurt you. You know, I know some of you don't see and understand maybe what I'm saying today, and you probably won't understand what I'm about to say right now. You know, it seems to be when you kind of get out there, you know, you kind of lose touch with the reality of things. And some of you younger kids probably, uh, when you're dealing with your parents, you know, at that age you're in right now, you know, you probably um, may have a hard time understanding this. But I want to tell you something. And I want your kid to listen to me, especially if you have good godly parents that are trying to do what the Word of God says in your life. And for you here who are sitting here in this church and there's people working with you, or even myself as your pastor, uh, I'm going to tell you, the greatest friend you will ever have will be the person who loves you and will love you enough to tell you the truth. It's just that simple. And we miss that. We miss that because end of the day, maybe where you're at right now, you don't want to hear the truth. And I'll and I give you this. There's a process, and we'll see this as we get through this next verse. There's a process to, to getting to that, that truth. Uh, a good pastor in his preaching will only preach the truth, and he'll help his people. He'll never, he'll never preach the Word of God to hurt them. He'll never have that in the back of his mind. He'll never look at, well, so-and-so did this or said this about me, so I'm going to take a cheap shot at them. Uh, uh, no, no. If you're going to take a shot at them, don't take a cheap one. Just go to their face and deal with it biblically. But he never hurts them. He helps them. And he'll be, he'll be, he'll be a faithful friend in that. And sometimes it wounds us. I mean, I, I grew up with probably the greatest spiritual father a man could ever have. And, but I recognized quickly, one, God put him in my life. Two, I had a lot of things I needed to learn. And I had a lot of rough edges that needed to be knocked off. And the only way that was going to happen was to get some wounding done. And it was come down to my attitude. I could have been like a lot of God's people. I could have got mad about it. We had a couple in our church one time, I won't tell you who it is, but, you know, uh, they, and, and, and I had no idea this happened. 
I found about it later. They had bought a, a car that was a little sportsy car. Uh, it was a Z something. I don't know what it was. I didn't even know that they had got it. And on my preaching, I'm telling the story about how years ago, when I, before I got right with God, I was into that stuff. I liked it. I had a 64 GTO. I had a 67 GTO. And I remember about a 71 or 72 Z28 Camaro. Oh, a heartthrob, man. I mean, that sucker would get up and talk to you. And, 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 and then I got right with God. And I started going out to camp, uh, helping out there. And that's where God began to work with me. And I would, I'd go to work and I'd drive in. And I'd, the only car I had was that G28 Camaro. And it was black with silver stripes up the throat in the back. You know, oh, oh, boy, I'll tell you, I had, had Mickey Thompson's on the back and the front, bigger ones in the back, Krager mags on it. Had headers on it. That sucker sounded like the death angel coming into Egypt when you fired it up. Straight pipes on it. Oh, it was incredible. And I remember going out, I come out to camp and I parked there, you know, and it was senior high week, which was always a big week. And I had pulled in there and I, 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 I got out of the car, you know, you could hear me coming. I mean, it was, when you started up, it was, it was incredible. And I shut it off, you know, and got out, and these high school kids were standing there. And they weren't from our church. They were from, I think they were from, like, Middletown, Ohio. One of them come over and said, wow, mister, that's really a nice car. And I thought, well, thank you, you know. You know, at this point, he says, he says, man, he says, what are you doing in a place like this with a car like that? That was it. That wounded me. And I asked myself the same question. I, I, next week, I treated that in for a Chevy Vega. Anybody remember the Chevy Vegas? You could not get farther from the world in a car than a Chevy Vega. It was, it was absolutely the most benign, mundane car that you could ever have. And, and a four-cylinder. I went, from a, I went from a Z28 with a what? What that have in a 305? 30, I don't know what it was, but it was a short-stroke black engine. I mean, it, it was a screamer. I went from that to a John Knox Village grocery car machine for Saturday morning going to Dollar General store. And I told that story. And the people in the church that had just bought the Z car thought I was talking to them. I had no idea. And they mad and left the church. I, I don't know what to say to something like that. People, you think I didn't get where I'm at if I'm anywhere by, by not being wounded? Oh, Mel Sabaka, brother, he saw in people and he knew that things had to be done to get them where they needed to be. And he was not the most guy with the most finesse in how he did it because he was old school. And I'm preaching at camp one time, and I'm, or I, so I think it was camp somewhere, but there's a bunch of people there. And I just started preaching. And I'm, and I'm, I'm going to town, and I'm, I'm having fun. And I, and I, I got into Genesis, and I was going to preach on the bums for a while. And I said, you know, uh, by the sweat of your brow, you earn your bread. And I'm going to town, and right in the middle of my sermon, 
He stands up and says, book, chapter, verse. I said, what? He said, book, chapter, verse on that last verse you gave us. I opened it up, and it didn't say the sweat of your uh, brow. It said by the sweat of your face. And right in the middle of five, 6,000, as far as I was concerned, right in the middle of the whole universe. He says, young man, if you're going to preach the word of God, you quote it correctly. No. Isn't that a little worse than a Z28 example? <laughs> I didn't leave the church. Amen. I didn't even get mad. Amen. You know what I did? I made sure from that point on I quoted it correctly. Amen. You know why? Because I knew what he was doing. And I knew I needed what he was doing. But see, that was a long time ago. We don't have that today. Guys going into ministry today, you may not see it. We, we, we criticize the Mormons for having lacy underwear. Most Baptist preachers have it too. <laughs> Sometimes it wounds us. And, and, and we get out of the mindset that we think that that's a bad thing. Because it doesn't feel pleasant. It hurts. We know that the word of God applied the right way from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It'll do, it'll do four things. All scripture is given by inspiration. It's profitable for doctrine. First thing it'll do, it'll teach you what's right. Reproof, it'll get you straightened out on where you're wrong. Correction, then it'll get you to the next level of showing you what's wrong with it. And then instruction in righteousness, it'll keep you from making the same mistakes again. And, you know, a pastor has to be faithful in what he believes, but he has to be faithful in, in, in preaching it to the people. And that doesn't mean you, you get an attitude about it that you go after somebody. No, you leave those things aside and you just preach the word of God that God has given you. And proof and correction will always come by wounding. The question is, is it a faithful wounding? is the wounding we need to change. You know, the key to real spiritual growth and change will be us developing a self-discipline in our lives. And, you know, nobody, nobody is just born with, well, maybe there is, I don't know, but most people are not born with that ability of self-discipline. They have to get motivated. They have to get elevated. They have to get accelerated. And through these things only comes the process of truth uh, being preached and they get to the point where they, they develop that discipline. And that hurts sometimes. It's a wounding. But when the attitude behind the wounding or the preaching is for your own good, then it's, it's good for us. You know, a great example of this will be found in Paul's two letters to the church of Corinth. And Paul started this church. He loved these people. But he's gone now out doing his deal when he gets these reports that the church has really went sideways and it's really in a mess, much like the church today. And he writes them a letter, 1 Corinthians, and in that letter, he wounds them. But the wounds were from a faithful friend, faithful to the truth of God and what they were not doing, faithful to the people that he loved to help them get them back to the truth that they lost. So we see in the book of 1 Corinthians, what a messed up church. In chapter 1, they are arguing, 
your spiritual level based on who baptized you. If you were baptized by Paul, then you're somebody. If you were baptized by this guy over here that nobody knew, then you weren't as spiritually good as this other person. In chapter 2, he takes them to task because they're not following the Word of God. In chapter 3, they're doing with who won who to Christ the same thing they did with who baptized who. Who, who won you to Christ? Well, the Apostle Paul did back there. Wow, you're really spiritual. Who won you to Christ? Ralph Schwartz. Who's he? And they were tagging a spiritual level to the person who won you to Christ. In chapter 4, he takes them to the task that they're not being stewards of the mysteries of God. We know that there's seven of them. Seven for the church. There's 12 for the nation of Israel. In chapter 5, there's sin in the church, and they're doing nothing about it. In chapter 6, they're having issues in the church. Instead of of dealing with it as Christians, they're taking it to a civil court, and Judge Judy's dealing with it. In chapter 7, they're all messed up on the aspect of divorce and remarriage. In chapter 8, they're, again, messed up on meat given to idols. Some of the people are going down to the market on Monday morning and getting the meat that was used in the uh, pagan sacrifices for a dollar cheaper a pound and, uh, because it's, uh, and, 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 and some of the brethren are having a tough time with that because in their mind, they're eating demon-possessed meat. Chapter 9, they're messed up on their liberty in Christ. In chapter 10, they're not following the Old Testament examples. And in chapter 11, they're messed up on the Lord's Supper. In chapter uh, 12, 13, and 14, they're messed up on spiritual gifts. We've been there a lot. Chapter 15, they're messed up on the resurrection. In chapter 16, um, they're not doing the collection of the saints the way that they should. And 1 Corinthians is a a great example of faithful are the wounds of a friend. Paul loved these people. He loved this church. But he's not going to stand by and let them not do what the Word of God says without telling them. And chapter by chapter, he wounds them. He deals with their lack of spiritual growth and, and, and how it's holding them back. He calls them a bunch of spiritual babies. And he loves them. And he wants them to grow. But he knows that they're in a place right now that is not good. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, he says to them, he says, you know what? I'm sorry I wounded you, but I'm glad I did it because it got you right, so I'm happy that I made you sorry. And you'll find that the eight qualities that I gave you a little bit ago and a couple of weeks ago are found in book of 1 and 2 Corinthians because based on the wounding of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, they get right with God. And now uh, you see the result of him wounding them. In chapter 1, he shows them that through suffering, he, he, he makes it very clear that I'm not the great apostle Paul and you're down here. He tells them in chapter 1 that we're in this together. And a pastor becomes one with his people through suffering with them. And he talks about the closeness. Chapter 2 he lays out the forgiving spirit of the minister. In chapter 3, he talks about the real proof of a man's ministry. It's not what he says or how many people he hires around him. The real proof of a man's ministry is the lives that he himself has invested in. Chapter 4, he, he defines for them what the ministry is. It's, it's manifesting truth. In chapter 5, he talks about the perspective of the ministry, and that, of course, is the judgment seat of Christ. 
In chapter 6, he talks about the fellowship that we should have in ministry. And there again, that is, we're in fellowship with the sufferings of Christ. Chapter 7, he talks about the promises to uh, the, the church or the minister. And, of course, that will be the principles that we talk about all the time. Chapter 8 and 9, he talks about the heart of ministering. Chapter 10, he talks about the mind of the minister. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, is the verse that uh, we would add to that. Chapter 11, he talks about the wisdom of the minister. In chapter 12, he talks about the humility of the minister being a servant. And in chapter 13, he closes it out. And to me, it's always been a great two books. Because in chapter 13, he goes back to the brokenness of the minister. Brokenness for his people wanting wanting them to do what God wants them to do, that they can be all God wants to be, that they'll receive the full reward. And Paul's a great sample of faithful are the wounds of a friend. You know, these two books, First and Second Corinthians, will show and illustrate Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6, um, incredibly well, our verse today. And through the, uh, you know, through the faithful wounding of a friend, it it led to this church getting back to God. And, and I got to tell you, the book of 2 Corinthians is probably, without a doubt, the greatest book in the Bible as the handbook of ministry. In fact, it's interesting to see how the order of the books go. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which all deals with the first coming of Christ in Israel. You have the book of Acts, which is that transition from the Old Testament Jew to the New Testament church. Then you have Romans, which is the doctrinal handbook to the church. Then you have, you have the 1 Corinthians, which shows you the kind of church you don't want to be. And then the next one, the second Corinthians, it shows you the church that you want to be. And it becomes the handbook for us for ministry. But it never would have been. There never would have been a second Corinthians that a Paul wouldn't have wrote first Corinthians and wounded them. So what I'm saying is out of the wounding will always come some good things. Yet I got to tell you this, in the church of Gore, just like today, not everybody was happy with Paul dealing with them. There was an element in that church, as there will be in most churches, uh, uh, you know, that, that will resist the preaching of the Word of God to change them because they don't want to change. They will go to a church, and, you know, you've seen it. Most of you have worked with people like this. They will go to a church, they'll begin to grow, and they'll go to a point. But then when they're faced with really the reality of who they are, and now it's more than just the fun times of eating out and playing softball and doing this. Now that Holy Spirit of God is looking into your face, and the Holy Spirit of God is showing you these things need to change. And you don't want to change. People will resist change. I mean, I, 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 I don't like change. The older you get, the less you like change. You know, there's people that, you, you young people are excited about moving into a, a house. You know, you had an apartment or you got a little house and now you're excited about maybe getting a chance to get a, a, a bigger house. I will never move ever again. <laughs> never. My home is not my castle. My home is my fort. <laughs> I would never think of boxing everything up again. Are you kidding me? In all of the universe, there's not enough boxes for what I have. <laughs> Going to the place where you start all over again. You, I, I don't like change. I, I, you know, I, I don't like to try a lot of new things to eat. 
I've never had a glass of iced tea in my life. I've never tasted another piece of pie ever other than apple or strawberry. And if I went to your house and you would have coconut cream or mousse or some kind of, I just politely say, I'm good, thank you. I'm on a diet. I just, I don't like change. I don't like, I know what food is good for me. I know what I like. I don't need, I don't need all the other stuff. If it isn't in my little world, I'm not interested. Now that's, that's me. That's stupid. But the older we get, where do you get to be my age? You ain't going to want to change. You, 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 you know, you're going to get set in your ways and you're going to, you know, but the problem with God's people is they're a lot younger than I am and spiritually they don't want to change. They'll change in the world all kinds of stuff. They'll change this, change that, but when it comes to changing their life to be what God wants them to be, they resist that just like I resist your coconut cream pie. And it's probably great. And the attitude in receiving truth doesn't match the attitude by which the truth is given to them. Now look at the last part of verse 6 here. But the kiss of an enemy are deceitful. Now that's somebody pretending you love somebody when you really don't. That's somebody who goes along with the truth, but in pastor preaches or the whatever, in discipleship or, or whatever, just in your daily uh, relationships, going along with the truth, uh, but never really accepting it, not allowing it to change you. And again, two great examples of this in the Bible, and you probably already figured them out. First one would be Judas the Sicariot. My goodness, what a great example he is. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the man who betrayed Jesus. And, you know, they're sent out in Matthew chapter 10. They all go out and do the same thing. In fact, the uh, uh, Judas goes out with the 12. Uh, he heals the sick, raises the dead, does everything that the rest of them does. But he winds up betraying them. Then you have the second one back in 2 Samuel uh, uh, 15 would be Absalom, David's son. And he pretended that he went along with the king and he pretended that he was faithful and loyal to David and all the time he's trying to usurp David's authority in his kingdom. He's down there at the gate, you know, trying to build a a following of himself so he can overthrow David. And both of them went along with what they were doing, but underneath the surface they were, you know, they they were subversive. They were trying to do what they could do. And in both cases they were all around kissing people. When Judas betrayed, but Judas betrayed Christ, he went up and kissed him. And you'll find in 2 Samuel chapter 15 that that Absalom kisses people. You know, in the Bible, you'll find, and we've studied this before on Thursday night, there's seven kisses in the Bible. If you want to study kissing, and you ought to do that, AJ, and, uh, you know, and Sean over here, all you, you you know what? There's seven kisses in the Bible. And there is a kiss of romance. Wise men. There's a kiss of romance. But one of the seven kisses is the kiss of deceit. That's this one. They'll kiss you on Sunday and betray you on Monday. They will gain your confidence. And then in time, they'll use your own ministry subversively underneath against you uh, to hurt you. 
And I want to tell you, you know, I'll tell you something. In almost 50 years of ministry, I've been kissed by a few Judases and a few Absaloms. But it's just the way it goes. You don't throw your towel in and say, I'm done, I quit. It's just part of it. You understand it. But it's true. There are people who will, reject, who will accept the preaching when it's done right, and there's people who will reject it no matter how right it's done. Now, now look at verse 7. Here we go. The full soul loatheth a honeycomb, but at the hungry soul every bitter thing is sweet. Now, the first part today was about an attitude behind preaching the pastor. Now, the second part here will be, we'll look at the attitude of God's people in receiving that preaching. The full soul loatheth the honeycomb. Loathing means to hate with a passion. And I've always thought it interesting that there's no real middle ground with God. You'll either love the word of God with a passion or you'll loathe it with a passion. But it's hard to believe that there's any place in between. I mean, it may work with your mother-in-law, your father-in-law, or your friends, when you say, well, I kind of like him or I don't. But when it comes to God, you're either in or you're out. Amen. The honeycomb, obviously, is the word of God. The full soul will be somebody who's full of the world. All the things that you've replaced God uh, and his word with. Now, let me just say this. The, the mark of a, of a true child of God, right with God, uh, can simply be, uh, will simply be, he enjoys getting the faithful wounds that come to him from a friend. And I'll tell you why he does, because he loves truth that much. He has matured to the point in his life where he knows for absolutely sure that the faithful wounds of a friend will be far better than your self-inflicted wounds from the world. But there's some people that'll just never get that. One will lead to your healing, that's the faithful wounds of a friend. The other one will lead to your destruction. And I know it's a process, but you find many of God's people get to the point because of their relationship with God, because of what they understand and they see God and what he's doing and the only's there for them. They will absolutely, actually learn to enjoy the rebuking, the correction, even the chastisement because he knows he needs it, first of all, reality check. And second of all, he knows it's coming from a faithful friend who at the end of the day just has, wants him to get a full reward of the judgment seat of Christ. And honestly, there is nothing wrong with that. He's got a perspective on life. He's got a purpose in life. He's got an a understanding of what God has called him to do. And from time to time, his passion may wane because of all the other things, so he appreciates somebody telling him the truth to make sure that passion stays where it needs to be so when there's a day coming, he stands before the judgment seat of Christ, hey, he stands where God wants him to be. He knows the key is self-discipline, and he knows that self-discipline will come with a price. It, it just doesn't happen. It only comes through a structure. You know, when a boy goes into the military or a girl goes into the military, you know, th their goal is to train them to be whatever end result they want that soldier to be or Marine to be. 
And, uh, and most, you know, a lot of guys uh, in the past have looked at it that were undisciplined and unstructured. And many people think that, that uh, you know, going into the service, going into the military will be that f- cure-all for that because they'll give you what you need to grow you up. And, and I'll be very honest with you, that is true in some cases, but I'll be also honest, it's not true in other cases. When I was in back in the day, you, you went in and you were a screw-up and you didn't want to, a lot of guys went in that way. I mean, uh, I got a kid one time gave a testimony. He said, he said, well, I grew up in my home and I was against my dad. My dad and I fought. My dad was, you know, tried to get me to do what's right and go to church. And I fought him and I was against everything he did. And I just couldn't get away to go out of the house. I fought with my mom and my dad. I didn't like their rules. I didn't like the things they made me do, the times I had to come in at home. So I fixed them. I went away and joined the Marine Corps. <laughs> yeah, that was smart. Back in my day, if you didn't do that, they put you back in what they called a motivation platoon. And the mean word means motivation platoon. They motivated you. Now they just send you back home. It's all different. You don't like it now. You can wham wham your way back home. I mean, it's a, it's a thing where, you know, it may be true or it may not, but my point is this. You only get to the point for the guys that, and the gals that make it and come out a picture Marine or soldier or airman or Navy guy, and they, now they have the self-discipline. They just didn't get that at a, out of a can of sea rations. That came through a structure of wounding them, taking everything from them. In fact, I've always thought the military is just like Christianity, I mean, the first thing you do is lose everything, all your identity. That's what a Christian ought to do. You get a haircut, all your beautiful locks go off, and now suddenly you just look like everybody else. You're all ball-headed. I mean, uh, they, they march around, uh, you know, in, in, in all the same color uniforms. You can't tell one from the other. You lose all your identity, and they tear you down, and then they begin through a process, a structure, to build you back to give them what they want, so they can send you wherever they want to send you to uh, do whatever they want to do with you. Well, that's what Christianity is. When you got saved, you lost all your rights. You got your hair cut. You lost everything with the world you're supposed to. And now the structure of the New Testament church is to build you back with a purpose through a structure to give you the self-discipline to be everything that God wants you to be. And, you know... Uh, many of God's people, many in our church, you counted that cost and you said, that's what I want. And, you know, the great key question for all of us today is is simple. I mean, I could have saved all this time on the message, but since I put so much time in it, I thought I better go ahead and good it. But I can just ask you one question. How hungry are you today for truth? Because that's the real question. I mean, are you a hungry soul? Are you full of everything in the world and you don't need it? You know, and the guy now knows that the uh, Christian life is, is about change. That's, that's what it's about. It's about change. It's about a transformation of our lives to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that only comes through a wounding. It comes through growing through adversity. It comes, it comes through correction and rebuke and admonishment. Change of what we think we are to understanding what we really are. And then changing it. 
and the word of God through the preaching, being cut, being stabbed, being pricked, being, uh, you know, being pierced, being wounded in your pride, in your attitude, in your, uh, your, your uh, indifference, your arrogance, your stupidity. And actually, believe it or not, there comes a time when you enjoy that. I mean, you'll say, well, I really needed that today. Thank you. Really? Somebody else gets mad over the Z28 issue and they're gone. You see the difference? And I'll tell you why. You, you, you've realized and understand and, uh, that, that for you that in your life, the chastisement of God in your life comes through wounding. And Hebrews chapter 12, verses 9, 10, 11 says, For the moment it's not joyous but grievous, but afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit unto God. And you know that the wounding is not pleasant at the time, but you learn to like it because you know what it's going to lead to. He says in Hebrews 12.10, he says, the wounds, he, he, he wounds us for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. And he's faithful in that to us. You know why? Because he's the best friend we ever had. And where a pastor may get out of whack and say something to hurt you, he never will. And so when you build that relationship with him, you learn to trust him. And you learn to enjoy the preaching that he gives to you. You learn to look at yourself and constantly realize that we need to be refitted in a state of change. And we know we get out of whack sometimes. And we know that the only thing that will get us back in whack is a little tap. And when a little tap doesn't work, a swift boot in the rear end will help you even more. Now, you know, two of the greatest verses of the Christian life are right here before us today. And yet, just like every time, every week, some of God's people today didn't even bother to come to hear it. For them, it'll be what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Tomorrow, almost putting off, changing to be what God wants you to be, procrastination, all through the things of God that we don't want to change in our lives. But for so many of God's people, we know that the attitude of heart will be everything. And because of that, even the bitter things become sweet. You realize that at the end result, it's going to be okay for you. Because life is about change. And the attitude of a pastor is to love his people, look to his flocks, and give them the truth, even when it wounds them. And the attitude of God's people to take that truth, even when it wounds them, and allow God to mold them, grow them, and take them through the level of spirituality that he wants them to be, and to grow, and change about them whatever they need to change. Because faithful are the wounds of a friend. And when you get to that point in your life, the wounding, even the bitter things become sweet. You love all of the Word of God, not just when it tells you how good you are, which, if we're honest, would be a very short sermon. <laughs> because we all have our struggles. The pastor faithful in putting out the truth, the child of God faithful in receiving and then applying the truth. And through the right attitude, the pastor and his people, truth, 
do, uh, then does her perfect work in our lives to change us, change us, to transform us into the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, that we grow up, not unto him, grow up into him. And it's a simple issue. Like everything else in life, we like to make it more complicated, but you can see today how simple it is. I took a long way around just to give you a simple little ending. How hungry are you for the truth? Because that determines it all. How well will you take the wounding? Uh, Do you leave the church when somebody says something that you don't like because you know you're wrong and you don't want to admit it, so it's easier to leave than to change? I don't know how it works. How hungry are you for the truth, the real truth, about life? How hungry are you for the real truth about God? How hungry are we for the real truth about the world? How hungry are we for the real truth about his word? And then the ultimate question, how hungry are you for the real truth about ourselves? Because that's where it has to start. You know, I've told you this story many, many times, and I must confess it is probably one that I heard so many years ago that impacted my life, and I've used it a thousand, hundred thousand times. It's so, so, so perfect, and yet there'll be people here today who will never hear it, so it's okay. Speaking of truth, wisdom, understanding, and all the things that, that uh, we ought to want and be hungry for, story goes that over in the Middle East, centuries ago, there was a, in every village had one, there was a, a wise man who everybody in the village went to. This man was spectacular in his ability to give information, to solve problems. His wisdom was seemingly en- en- endless. And there was a young boy that grew up in that village who stood in awe of the old man who was really up in his years by now. And he, he wanted the knowledge that that old man had. He, he, he reveled in the thinking of someday being like that where people would come to him with their problems and he would always give them the wise answer for everything that they were dealing with. So one day he, he goes to the old man and very humbly knocks on his door and the old man invites him in and he sits down and he begins to explain to him that that he stood in awe of his wisdom and his ability to knowledge that he has. And he said, I, I, I really come up here today to ask you if you'll take me on as your apprentice. I, I, I don't mean this in a bad way, but you're up in years and you're not going to be around forever and somebody's going to have to, you know, take over and I don't know anybody or see anybody. Uh, and I was just wondering if you would consider even sharing with me all the wisdom and the knowledge that I could just follow you along and listen and learn and do everything that you do and then someday I could be the wise man that you are. The old man looked at him and he said, yeah, I said, I I think that's a great idea. He said, I'll tell you what, be back here here at 3 o'clock this afternoon and I'll begin the process for you. Well, the old boy, he thought, man, that was easy. He was elated. He thought, man, I mean, you can imagine a little guy going home. I mean, he just met, he just met the, 
the great guru, and now he's going home thinking, I'm going to be a guru too, also, <laughs> like him. So 3 o'clock came around, and the little guy could hardly wait. And so he comes around 3 o'clock, and he comes up to that day, and the old man standing on the porch just like this. And the young boy says, I'm here, I'm here sir, I, I, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And he didn't say anything, he just motioned him, put his hands on his shoulder. It was a, there was a kind of a lake there, and he walked him down, and the, and the kid's thinking, man, this is going to be some ceremony here. Now he's going to do something spectacular. You know, maybe we're going to walk on water. <laughs> so he takes him down, you know, and he takes him into the water, to the knees up there, and he gets this guy, and the, and the old man was tall. He gets this kid where the water is just right about here, right under, right under his mouth. And he's looking up at him thinking, oh, boy, this is great. He's going to give me one of these deals, you know, or he's going to, yeah. And about that, he began to open his mouth to say something. And about that time, the old man put his hands right on his head and shoved him under the water. And he just stood there. Now, the kid didn't get a mouthful of air when he went under because <clears throat> his mouth was open. So he's drinking a lot of swamp water. And he's kicking around, jerking around. The old man just standing there. Holding him under that water, just holding him around, just holding him down. Kids screaming and yep, we're not screaming, but he's, he's kicking around and all that stuff. And the old man held him under for about ninety seconds. And just about the time that kid was ready to succumb and drown, he he pops him up. The kid is gasping, choking, puking all over the place. The old man grabs him by the thing and lays him right on the beach and stands in front of him like that. And the kid is coughing, choking, spitting up, and he's trying to get his words out and he's infuriated. He says, this was some kind of joke to you. I came to you wanting the secrets of wisdom and knowledge and to be able to help people and have the knowledge that you have. And this is what you do? Halfway drown me? He says, you're a phony. You're a farce. He says, I want nothing. To, and he's going through that. going to all this stuff, you know. About, and then the, he just looks up at the old man. And he says, he says what, is, what is with you? You know what the old man said? He says, son, you want wisdom? You want knowledge? You want the wisdom? Well, until you want it, just like a few minutes ago, you wanted a breath of air, you'll never get it. You want that book? You want to know it? You want to have Well, I'll tell you something. Till you want it, like you want your next breath of air, you'll never get it. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. You'll come to the place when you see that and understand that and allow God to change you, to transform you, to make you everything God wants you to be. You'll then come to the place on Sunday morning, Thursday night, in your prayer groups, driving down the road, listen to a sermon on the radio or in your CD deal. You'll realize that because you love truth and you love it and want it more than anything else on this planet, even the wounding and the bitter things to your soul will be sweet things because you realize and understand that's what it takes to make you what God wanted you to be. If you could really understand and look at it, you look at the sufferings on the cross, all the agony that he went through, he went through that for you. He took it for you, and then we get in one little business meeting or one little church service, something goes against our little a little frail way we are, and we leave the church. When he hung on that cross and took the agony and the abuse and everything the devil had for one reason, he wanted to spare you from going through it so you could be everything that God wants you to be. He took the hard stuff 
So all you'd have to do, with, as Paul said, the light affliction. Attitude in the pastor putting out the truth. Your attitude as a, pastor, as a person in the church receiving that truth. Right motive from him putting it out because he loves you and wants you to be everything God wants you to be. Right attitude to you taking it, realizing that, and then allowing God to change you so you can be whatever God wants you to be. Every head bowed, every eye closed.